The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you, simply find out who you're not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH, I'm Andy, your host. Before we start today's show, I would like to thank James for his recent donation. So today is Thursday and it's time for our weekly visit from our good friend Dr Peter Hammond. So let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I am, thank you Andrew. Thank you so much Peter and uh, I just want to uh, do a shout out here for a friend of mine, Mark R. Elsis, who has uh, a great resource called earthnewspaper.com. He goes all over the independent media finding choice clips for people to watch and um, articles for people to read and uh, also shows. And uh, recently he's been putting our shows, uh, Peter, in his newsletter as we publish them. So we thank him for the exposure and his website is earthnewspaper.com and people can go there and hit the subscribe button and get the daily newsletter as I do each day and I scroll through it and pick out what I want to listen to and what I want to read. He's going out there doing the work for you and so it's kind of a news aggregation um, newsletter that he's putting together that I've found to be very useful and that is earthnewspaper.com. So that being said, um, today Peter has got something that's extremely pertinent based upon the, well, let's give you the title, The Real Story of Propaganda in the Media. So Peter, where would you like to start us off today with this topic? Andrew, we are being deluged with images and narratives of the war in Ukraine. And so it's very well for us to remember the first casualty in war is truth. And as my history teacher in Rhodesia, Mr. Reese Davies reminded us, beware the victor's version. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And it's so important that we know the truth. And uh, if you just look at what's going on right now in the mass media, we, we had this case just a while ago, it's gone viral, a video of the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson being berated at a press conference in Warsaw over uh, the invasion of Afghanistan. And there was this Ukrainian journalist, it seemed, Daria Kalinuk, uh, although it turned out in the end, she wasn't a journalist. She's actually a World Economic Forum young um, global leader, um, <laughs> protege of Klaus Schwab, 
And there she is in the right, uh, close to the front row, center, right in front of the podium. So very hard to miss. And she had this long speech and very emotive and uh, um, where Boris Johnson seemed awfully intimidated because it looked like somebody who was just spontaneously challenging him. Meanwhile, this person is a World Economic Forum, uh, young global uh, activist leader um, and uh, was obviously part of an agenda. Now, when the other side is being heavily censored, for example, you can't get Russia today, now in the West, it's all been deplatformed and blocked. And when you're only getting one side's narrative, you begin to wonder well, what's true and what isn't. And I find it very interesting at this moment to get, for example, the Indian news, India Today and WION from India. Uh, they've been a lot more objective looking at what's going on and not just repeating the West's narrative. And they actually have um, get, made some very good points. Uh, and uh, particularly, you, you think uh, things that aren't being adequately focused in, in the Western media, such as this is Europe's war, and this has got nothing to do with Asia, and Asia wants nothing to do with it. And that's why we didn't uh, vote, we abstained from the UN um, censure uh, debate on, on Russia. And uh, how uh, India should not get dragged into the power politics of America and Europe and so on. And uh, uh, interesting to get other people's perspectives. That's why it was often good to go to Russia today to see, well, what are they saying? Instead of just getting these normal BBC, CNN type of narrative, which is awfully repetitive and seems to continually beat the globalist World Economic Forum drum. So just to get some backdrop as I'm sure people are seeing all images saying, you know, how can this be happening and this, that and the other? Well, you begin to wonder, but what's true and what isn't? Now, I've been through eight wars and I was brought up in Rhodesia, a country at war. And I remember all the sanctions and hysteria against Rhodesia and South Africa. And we were boycotted from the Olympics, from the paraplegics Olympics, from sports games. Our sportsmen couldn't play cricket, rugby, soccer, anything all over the world because of, well, politics. And I don't think that politics should ever be allowed to interview in sports or economics for that matter. I don't think these economic boycotts or these sports and cultural boycotts are helping anybody. It's just making people suffer on all sides. And you think of these sports people who, who train for years for major sporting uh, events and to suddenly have that blocked by some politicians arbitrary desire because they want to virtue signal and make some points, score some brownie points with their constituents uh, by, you know, well, they're doing something. Of course, it may not be helpful. It may not uh, actually do anything constructive, but it does hurt a lot of normal people. But what is it actually doing for the cause that they are there for? And I can say, for example, the economic boycotts of South Africa back in the 80s. What did that do? It put millions of black people out of work. And we still talk about the lost generation of millions who got no education before liberation, who were unemployable and who did not get a chance in life simply because of some virtue signaling students and foreign policy people, British Foreign Office, US State Department, American and British university campuses boycotting disinvestment in South Africa and so on and so forth and no sports tours uh, with South Africa, etc. And uh, well, what good did it actually achieve? And how come they never were calling for sports boycotts of the communist Chinese or for the Saudi Arabians who didn't allow women in sports until very recently uh, or uh, the Soviets uh, when they were invading countries all over the world. And with the exception of the 1980 
um, Olympic boycott of Russia, mainly because Amer um, uh, because of the um, uh, invasion of Afghanistan. Interesting. Uh, I wonder why America wasn't boycotted because of their invasion of Afghanistan. But nevertheless, there's a lot of double standards out there. So we need to step back and say, what is truth? And as early as 1930, John Dewey observed, we are being exposed to the greatest flood of mass suggestion that any people has experienced. Propaganda is to democracies what violence is to dictatorships. Propaganda is the calculated manipulation of public opinion to serve political and ideological interests, and it's pervasive. We are also, of course, exposed to commercial propaganda. Marketing and advertising is propaganda as well. In fact, the word PR, we think it stands for public relations, but actually it's the first two words of propaganda, and that's where they originally got the word PR from, and then later they added public relations because PR was just short for propaganda originally. Well, Propaganda today has moved into prop agenda, not only controlling what we think, but how we think and what we think about. Propaganda aims to do other people's thinking for them. Propaganda uses highly selective images, devious and prejudicial language, dubious linkages, confusing issues, distorting reality with disinformation. And this selective focus is a daily reality. For example, uh, they're focusing on Ukrainians being victims of war in Ukraine right now. But the same media has ignored Ukrainians who've been victims of shelling and rocketing over the last eight years because they were Russian-speaking Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine and they didn't really matter, did they? So uh, because the Ukrainian government forces have been shelling and rocketing Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine, that's Donetsk and Lahash, uh, who seceded from Ukraine back in 2014 off the American-sponsored coup d'etat, the Median Revolution, or the Revolution of Human Dignity, or however you want to call it, the Color Revolution, Orange Revolution. So that revolution, which, which toppled an elected president of Ukraine back in February of 2014, they've been waging a war against Russian-speaking Ukrainians in eastern Ukraine for the last eight years, and media didn't seem to care about the many thousands of civilian victims there, and the huge amounts of apartment blocks shelled, rocketed, and civilians murdered in the streets there. Anything from 30 to 15,000 civilians killed in Eastern Ukraine, that didn't seem to matter, apparently. And so when we're only receiving one side of the story, then we're being lied to. There's always two sides to any story. Every action has a cause, and there's a context behind every crisis. And by deplatforming alternative viewpoints, media Mongols, ensuring that we only receive one side of the story or the narrative on, on the war. Well, truth does not fear investigation. So it's actually not very helpful that you cannot easily get Russia today on the normal net because they've been deplatformed. It's, it's a pity because one does want to hear what your opponent is saying in any situation. George Orwell wrote, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth becomes a revolutionary act. Karl Marx declared the first battlefield is the rewriting of history. In his book, What is to be Done, published in 1902, Vladimir Lenin defined propaganda as the use of historic and scientific arguments to indoctrinate the educated and intelligent masses. So propaganda is for the educated and the intelligent masses. But agitation is described by Lenin as the use of slogans, stories, and selected half-truths to exploit the grievances of the uneducated and ignorant masses. 
So that's why you need propaganda and agitation. Propaganda for the intellectuals and agitation for the masses. Every unit of the Communist Party was to have an agitprop section. Deceit and propaganda is justified because the end justifies the means. That's what they say. So Vladimir Lenin regularly said, treaties are like pie crusts made to be broken. To tell the truth is a petty bourgeois habit, but to lie and to lie convincingly is a sign of superior intelligence. I mean, how can you even negotiate with Marxists to believe that lying is an art form you should refine? So the aim of propaganda is to rally people behind a cause. Now, if this requires exaggerating, misrepresenting, or even lying about the issues in order to gain that support, the end justifies the means. So the common tactics or hallmarks of propaganda are, number one, ignoring the historic context. You know, one day, Putin woke up and decided to invade Ukraine. There's no context, there's no cause. It's just, you know, he's mad. He's Vlad the mad and bad the bad, Vlad the bad. And you don't need to know more than that. No historic context needed here. I mean, you don't need to know about the Holodomor. You don't need to know about the betrayal of Ukraine by the Versailles Treaty. You don't need to learn about the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, which gave Ukraine its, its independence back in 1918, which the Germans won for them, liberating them back in 1917 and accepted in the Brest-Litovsk Treaty of March 1918. You don't need to learn about how Versailles Treaty reversed that and betrayed Ukraine back in the hands of the Soviet Union. Uh, you don't need to know about the Holodomor, where Stalin killed 11 million Ukrainians, or the millions of others who were shipped out to serve as slave labor in the gulags of, of Siberia. Uh, you don't need that historic context. You certainly don't need to know that Russia has been warning since 2008 that Ukraine must not join NATO, and if there is, there's going to be war, and that uh, the revolution sponsored in 2014 was organized by the U.S. State Department, the CIA, to oust an elected president of Ukraine and a personal friend of Vladimir Putin, an ally of Russia, and put in a client of New World Order. You certainly don't need to know that uh, World Economic Forum uh, has lifted up the le leader Vladimir um, Zelensky of Ukraine as uh, one of their young global leaders, a protege uh, uh, mentored by Klaus Schwab himself. Klaus Schwab's boasted about uh, Zelensky as, as his man. Uh, so you, you don't need to know that or that George Soros put uh, vast amounts of hundreds of millions into Ukraine and into the campaign for this um, one-time comedian um, actor uh, into his presidential campaign. Because, I mean, that, those facts will just confuse the narrative and interfere. So use selective stories. Uh, don't take the wide-angle lens, take the zoom lens. Utilize a narrow source of experts, those who tow the party line and repeat the narrative, and demonize the enemy. Of course, the enemy is evil. There's no uh, way that there's anything you can say uh, to justify them. Uh, there's no good reason. There's no context whatsoever. And use a narrow focus. Use the zoom lens. Focus on one individual tragedy. Ignore a whole lot of other ones. And certainly don't take the wide angle lens of context. So those are the hallmarks of propaganda. Winston Churchill, one-time British Prime Minister, declared in wartime, truth is so precious, she should always be attended to by a bodyguard of lies. So when the position is routinely being caricatured, when the other side's being stereotyped, you've got to know that you're being targeted by propaganda because people aren't normally two-dimensional cut-out characters. There's normally more depth than that. So when you're just getting one or two dimensional caricatures and stereotypes of the opponents, 
you should be saying, well, wait a minute, what's the story? Well, Mark Twain in 1916, just, just hear this quote and see if this doesn't sound relevant to today, um, 207 years later. 1916, Mark Twain said, next the statesman will invent cheap lies, putting the blame upon the nation that is attacked. And every man will be glad of these conscience-soothing falsities and will diligently study them and refuse to examine any refutations of them. And thus he will by and by convince himself that the war is just. And he will thank God for the better sleep he enjoys after this process of grotesque self-deception. <laughs> That's a quote from Mark Twain, 1916. Now, many people know that Joseph Goebbels used propaganda to advance the aims of the National Socialist Government of Adolf Hitler. But what few people realize is that the Nazi propaganda was based on and modeled upon Allied propaganda against Germany in the First World War. Joseph Goebbels was an ardent student of the American PR pioneer, Edward Bernays. Now, Edward Bernays, who, by the way, was a nephew of uh, Sigmund Freud, he based his methodology on the social science researches of the French psychologist Gustave Le Bon. In his, 19, uh, in his 1895 book, The Psychology of the Crowd, and also on Sigmund Freud's book, The Analysis of the Ego and Group Psychology, as well as the research of Russian experimental psychologist Ivan Pavlov. Remember Pavlov, that rings a bell. Um, and he wrote the book Conditioned Reflexes. So Edward Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He is a theatrical publicist who was employed by George Creel as a propagandist for the Committee on Public Information, the CPI. President Woodrow Wilson of the United States, by executive order, created this Committee on Public Information in associate with the Military Intelligence Bureau. Now, the CPI was America's propaganda office, and the CPI defined propaganda as the systematic, widespread dissemination or promotion of a particular idea, doctrine, or practice meant to further a particular cause or agenda and thus weaken that of another. It is a systematic effort to manipulate attitudes, beliefs, and actions by the use of symbols. So that's all from... Uh, Edward Bernays and the CPI. Well, the German philosopher George Hegel in his 1821 book, The Philosophy of Rights, explained, in democracies, the public is manipulated and persuaded by hidden persuaders and hidden manipulators. The French author Anatole France wrote, democracy is run by an unseen engineer. In fact, I've got a book on my shelf called The Unseen Hand, which um, analyzes the Illuminati and Council for Foreign Relations. So the unseen hand, unseen engineer. Edward Bernays based much of his methodology on the works of Walter Lippmann, who wrote about controlling and manipulating, managing public opinion. And he published later these ideas in Public Opinion, 1922, and The Phantom Public, 1925. The Phantom Public, you know, the people agree and all the people want in public opinion, which is, as he said, it's a phantom. We, we create this image of what, because people like to be on a majority like to join uh, the crowd. And so by telling people what everyone else is thinking, even if it's not true, you persuade people to change their positions. Walter Lippmann was a member of the American Army military intelligence during the First World War. And Lippmann believed most people are irrational and act chaotically. And because people are unable to independently make rational thoughts, they need to be guided by a specialized elite, a club of enlightened elites. So Lippmann described people as simple-minded and sheep-like, incapable of formulating or organizing their desires, their interests, or their wishes. Therefore, enlightened elites can lead and educate the masses. 
So Lippmann put it, making of one general will out of the multitude of general wishes. The public must be regimented, said Bernays. So in 1927, Harold Laswell, a professor in political science at the University of Chicago, analyzed the, the propaganda techniques employed by the Allies in the First World War. A new and subtler instrument must weld thousands, even millions of human beings into one amalgamated mass of hate and war and hope through propaganda. It is the new dynamic of society. The fact remains that propaganda is one of the most powerful instrumentalities of the modern world. Propaganda is a reflex to the immensity, the rationality and the woefulness of the modern world. Les will explain that to mobilize the hatred of the people against the enemy represents the opposing nations as menacing, murderous aggressor, represent the opposing nation as satanic. It violates all moral standards. And this is a key thing. You cannot mobilize your society to hate and war without demonizing the enemy and representing them as totally satanic. So the objectives of propaganda were identified by Laswell as number one, to mobilize hatred against the enemy, who must be dehumanized and portrayed as barbaric, brutal, cruel, and uncivilized. Number two, to preserve the friendship of allies. Number three, to preserve the friendship and if possible, to procure the cooperation of neutrals. And number four, to demoralize the enemy. So you have propaganda aimed at uh, enemy forces to demoralize them, own forces to mobilize them to hate the enemy. And then you've got of uh, the allies uh, to make sure they stay friends and don't switch sides and then to try and win over the neutrals. Before being elected as a candidate for peace in the presidential elections of 1916, Woodrow Wilson warned, lead this people into war and they will forget there was ever such a thing as tolerance. To fight, you must be brutal, ruthless, and the spirit of ruthless brutality will enter into the very fiber of national life, infecting the Congress, the courts, the policemen on the beat, the man in the street. In fact, as early as January 1916, Woodrow Wilson was warning this is a government of the people, and the people will not choose war. Well, <laughs> once he was elected under the slogan of, he has kept us out of the war, Woodrow Wilson established the Committee on Public Safety, which forged the nation which was overwhelmingly opposed to intervention to a situation where if anyone believed America's entry into Europe's war was a mistake, then they were branded as a traitor. And in fact, people were, were lynched um, for opposing the war in America. That's how effective the CPI took a people who were 85% opposed to war in Europe to people who were more like 85% committed to the war and hating those who weren't. Now, in the First World War, more than 8 million German-Americans lived in America. Many were sympathetic to the cause of their homeland. Over a third of Americans were immigrants, and most Americans were not connected to Europe conflict by blood or capital. They weren't interested in waging war overseas. So the Committee on Public Information, CPI, developed into the most formidable propaganda apparatus in history. A muckraking journalist, George Creel, was appointed to lead the CPR. He was a scandal rag person. With a phenomenal budget, the CPR recruited from the best of business, media, academia, and the art world. And the CPR blended advertising techniques with a sophisticated understanding of human psychology. It was the first time that a modern government disseminated propaganda on such a large scale. And although propaganda came to be linked with totalitarian regimes like the Soviet Union and Red China, it's a fact of history that it first emerged in a democratic state. Although as a journalist, 
George Creel had once been an outspoken critic of censorship, the moment he took control of the CPI, they immediately took steps to limit conflicting information. Passing the Espionage Act and Sedition Act, voluntary guidelines were enforced on the news media. They called it voluntary, but it wasn't. And ensured that the mass media in the United States was flooded with pro-war material and perspectives. On any given week, more than 20,000 newspaper columns across America were filled with material gleaned from CPI press releases. The CPI created a division of syndicated features, which recruited the help of leading novelists, short story writers, essays to present the pro-war position in popular digestible format, reaching 12 million readers a month. Uh, just like in Britain, they, they actually recruit some of the best journalists, paid them in order to produce propaganda to motivate the population to war and demonize the enemy. So the division of pictorial publicity had at its disposal the most talented advertising illustrators and cartoonists of all time. Money was no object. Powerful posters painted in patriotic colors presented compelling images throughout the country. The poster propaganda motivated millions to enlist in the army or navy or buy liberty bonds. And the division of films ensured that the war was promoted in the cinema. So the Hollywood film industry wholeheartedly supported the war effort with movie titles like The Kaiser, The Beast of Berlin, Wolves of Culture, To Hell with the Kaiser and Perishing Crusaders. I mean, the titles tell you quite a lot right there. The cause of the Allies was creatively publicized in every available communication channel, including pulpits. Laswell pointed out that the propaganda wins wars with words, pictures, songs, parades, and many similar devices by the manipulation of collective attitudes. And I'm quoting straight from Laswell's book. So the CPR propaganda showed the way for future propaganda activities by appealing to the heart, not the mind. Emotional agitation, skillful manipulation made use of manufactured atrocity stories and simplistic slogans like make the world safe for democracy, which, let's face it, it's gotten much worse since that war. Will Irwin, a member of the CPR, wrote after war, we never told the whole truth, not by any manner of means. And G.S. very quoted a military intelligence officer who declared, you can't tell them the truth. So victories were routinely manufactured by American military authorities out of thin air. Defeats were suppressed. Dishonesty was encouraged. The end justifies the means, they kept saying. So the analyst attributed the failure of German propaganda in America to the fact that it emphasized logic over passion. As Count von Bernstorff observed, the outstanding characteristic of the average American is rather a great though superficial sentimentality. And the factual objective German press releases fail to grasp that. It's stories that grip people and images rather than facts. So as Laswell observed, so great are the psychological resistances to war in modern nations that every war must be presented as a war of defense against a menacing, murderous aggressor. There must be no ambiguity about who the public is to hate. Bernays openly admitted that he and his colleagues used made-up stories to provoke hate and fear necessary to raise the war bonds and the recruits necessary for the war. And they admitted their stories like bathtubs full of eyeballs and children being killed in anywhere were actually recycled fiction from previous conflicts. I mean, they just cooked them up in their minds. Uh, they didn't need any research effects because facts were irrelevant. The important thing is the results. So, so effective was this anti-German propaganda of the CPI in Germany and in, in the USA that Dachshunds had to be renamed. And 14 states actually banned the teaching or speaking of German in public schools, even though there were millions of German-speaking people in the country at that time. And mobs assaulted German, 
German immigrants into the country. And Robert Prager, German coal miner, was lynched by an angry mob in Illinois and, and so on. And poor pacifists like the uh, Amish in Pennsylvania were beaten, arrested, imprisoned for refusing to conscript, uh, I mean, they were pacifists. And next thing they, they were being beaten and attacked and imprisoned uh, for not being enthusiastic in the war, even though they don't believe in war. The CPI recognized that while emotional appeals and simplistic stereotypes of the enemy could influence many, the intellectuals and pacifists needed a different motivation. So for them, American military intervention in Europe was described as a campaign to end warfare forever and to establish a League of Nations. That inspired uh, in the idealists. To the industrialists, the war was modified as a conflict to destroy the competition of German industry. The propagandists did not need to ask if what they said was true, but nearly does it work. So in the final months of 1920, a war-weary American public ousted the Democrats out of the Congress, Senate, and the White House, who had led them into World War I. And the Republican majority in Congress brought the CPI under increasing scrutiny. And the director of CPI's foreign division later reported, the history of propaganda in the war would scarcely be worth consideration here. But for one fact, it did not stop with the armistice. No, indeed. The methods invented and tried out in the First World War were too valuable for the use of governments, factions, and special interests. So Edward Bernays took the techniques he had learned in CPR to Madison Avenue and became an outspoken proponent of propaganda as a tool for democratic governments. It was to the astounding success of propaganda during the war that opened the eyes of the intelligent few to all departments of life to the possibility of regimenting the public mind. And he wrote this in 1928 in his book, Propaganda, written by Edward Bernays. So most Americans came to realize that they'd been lied to, they'd been manipulated by deceit disguised as news. And many sought to pin complete responsibility for America's involvement in a ruinous war on hate-mongering militarists in the CPI. But as one noted, ultimately the guilt is less important than the questions about the activities which raised about the role of propaganda in a democratic society. The whole theory of a democratic society is rooted in the belief that free citizens can form their own opinions about the issues of the day to decide their collective destiny. But for this, you need freedom of speech, freedom of opinion, freedom of association, freedom of thought, freedom of religion. These are fundamental necessities for any democratic process. But during the First World War, America's and Britain's political leaders decided that their citizens were not making the correct decisions quickly enough. So they flooded the channels of communication with dishonest messages, today we'd call fake news, that were designed to stir up emotions and provoke hatred of their longtime trading partner, Germany. They used fake history, fake news, fake stories. The war did come to an end, but the propaganda did not come to an end. And today, many who espouse the ideals of democracy behave like dictators and propagandists. The question is whether propaganda is compatible with freedom. Propaganda clearly undermines a population's ability to think clearly and critically about world events. Simplistic emotional appeals undermine logic and reason. So students of propaganda soon noted that while the CPI was the largest propaganda operation to that date, it was not actually the first deception operation. Shortly after the end of the American Civil War, or the war between the states, the journalist Colborne Adams wrote, the future historian of the late war will have a very difficult task to perform, to sift truth from falsehood as it appears in the official records. 
two prominent newspapermen took the credit for leading America into the Spanish-American War of 1898. William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, after whom the Pulitzer Prize is named, editorially clamored for American military intervention against Spain. And through disinformation and media manipulation, these newspaper tycoons induced the United States to wage an unnecessary war against Spain. Sensational, inflammatory, propagandistic articles, editorials in Pulitzer's World and Hertz's Journal succeeded in inciting war hysteria and public enthusiasm for war with Spain, even though there was no need for it. But Randolph Hearst famously sent the artist Frederick Remington and other journal correspondents to report on the civil war in Cuba. And Remington uh, sent back a telegram saying, everything is quiet. There's no trouble here. There will be no war. I wish to return. Hearst sent the following famous telegram reply. Please remain. You furnish the pictures. I will furnish the war. And Pulitzer and Hearst published inaccurate coverage, rumor, subterfuge, hearsay, outright fictitious reports to drum up feverish public demand for war. And in February 1898, the U.S. battleship Maine blew up in Havana Harbor. And the cause of the explosion was not determined, but immediately the U.S. media reaction was to blame Spain. It now is pretty much proven it was a false flag. The Americans blew up their own ship. But nevertheless, Pulitzer and Hearst clamored for war with titles such as Main Explosion Caused by Bomb or Torpedo? Question mark. That was the banner headline. Later, Hearst's journal ran the headline, How Do You Like the Journal's War? Well, after the First World War, Edward Bernays pioneered public relations, PR, and became known as the father of spin. As the PR consultant for the American tobacco company, he campaigned to convince American women they should smoke Lucky Strike cigarettes, the torches of freedom to emancipate themselves. He went to Lucky Strike and he said, I can double your, your customers. And they said, how on earth could you do that? He said, by persuading women to smoke. And Lucky Strike said, there's no way you're going to convince women to smoke. And he said, you give me the mandate and uh, the money and I'll make it. And he did. He hired actresses, glamour models uh, to smoke, to get them pictured, made sure it got on the front page of newspapers and so on and so forth, and uh, literally changed the whole picture of women smoking. And he doubled Lucky Strike's um, uh, market. Today, American businesses spend trillions of dollars on marketing. PR firms just in America employ 150,000 full-time staff just working on media propaganda or marketing. So Adolf Hitler in Mein Kampf analyzed allied propaganda techniques used during the First World War and wrote, the art of propaganda led to understanding the emotional ideas of the masses and finding through a psychologically correct form the way to the attention and then to the heart of the masses. The purpose of propaganda is to convince the masses. Its effect, for the most part, must be aimed at the emotions. The war propaganda of the English and the Americans was psychologically sound. By representing the Germans to their own people as barbarians and Huns, they prepared the individual for the terrors of war. All effective propaganda must be limited to a few points, a very few points, and harp on these in slogans until the last member of the public understands what you want them to understand by your slogan. To be a leader means to be able to move the masses. The intelligence of the masses is small. Their forgetfulness is great. They must be told the same thing a thousand times. That's a quote from Mein Kampf, Hitler analyzing Allied propaganda in the First World War. So the tactics of propaganda have been analyzed. And uh, here's some of the tactics listed. Number one, decontextualize the violence. Focus on the irrational without looking at the reasons or the cause. Dualism, reduce the number of parties in the conflict to two, even when there's more involved. 
there's the good and the bad. There's the right and the wrong. That's simple. That's it. Manaicism. Portray one side as good and demonize the other as evil. Number four. Armageddon. Present the violence as inevitable, emitting alternatives. And confusion. Focus only on the conflict arena, not focusing on factors uh, that and forces that influence the violence. And never explain why they are acts of revenge and spirals of violence. Failure to explore the causes of the escalation impact of the media coverage itself in causing the conflict in the first place. Failure to explore the goals of the outside interventionists, especially the big powers and the bankers, of course. And failure to explore the peace proposals and, and offer images of peaceful outcomes. Don't, we don't want that. So there's just got to be complete, you know, ignore any peace proposal. We've got to continue to do war. Even if, I mean, you just look right now with what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, there, back in January, uh, Vladimir Putin requested President Biden to give a guarantee that America would not put missiles in Ukraine. American President flat refused to it. Asked to meet with Biden to avert the crisis in February. Biden flat refused. Again, again, even during the conflict, offers given to Ukraine. We will stop the conflict if you will be neutral, demilitarized, have uh, not joined NATO. That could stop the conflict. Nevertheless, no, what are they doing? They're handing out firearms to civilians, people in civilian clothes being given assault rifles, and everyone, even women, being given Molotov cocktails. Molotov cocktails being produced on industrial scale, just everywhere, lots of forms. Now, what is this doing? It's blurring the division between civilians and military. If people in civilian clothes are going to be throwing Molotov cocktails and uh, petrol bombs uh, and uh, shooting from windows and apartment blocks, uh, what you're doing is you're guaranteeing uh, civilians becoming a target. And even a civilian who was shooting or throwing a petrol bomb can now be put down as a civilian casualty. But when you uh, say we're going to fight block by block, you are creating a situation where there will be civilian casualties and the city will be destroyed. So during the Second World War, for example, um, there was no fighting over Paris either time because when the Germans were coming, the French evacuated because they didn't want to have Paris destroyed in conflict, so they decided to just leave. And the Germans are the same. When Americans are coming uh, into Paris, they decide to leave without uh, damaging or destroying anything or subjecting uh, Paris to any kind of bombardment. Same thing was done with Rome. So some cities, are th we don't want this uh, the destruction. And so obviously, if you're going to say we're going to fight block by block, what are you asking for? You're asking for the city to be destroyed like Stalingrad. You know, basically, everything's rubble. Nobody can live in there. What are we fighting for? if we are willing to let our cities be turned to battle zones and destroyed. This this does not make sense. And why would one refuse offers of peace and peace proposals? Confuting ceasefires and negotiations with actual peace is nothing. And omitting reconciliation as any viable option. So these are some of what we see as the tactics of propaganda. Propaganda doesn't need to be true. It just needs to be plausible. And sometimes it can tell the truth, but withhold the point of view of the other side to create a distorted one-side perspective, ignoring context. So a British journalist, Philip Knightley, identified four stages in preparing a nation for war. Number one, the crisis. Negotiations are failing. We are on the brink of war. War is inevitable. And that's a crisis. Whip the people up. Number two, demonize the enemy leader. Absolutely important that the enemy leader is personally responsible for everything. Forget the context and everything else. Number three, demonize the individual enemies as as um, evil. So every one of the soldiers on the other side are, are, are demonic and evil. Number four, atrocities. 
make up stories to whip up and strengthen emotional reactions and to strengthen the resolve of your people to win over neutrals and so on. So the crisis, the demonization of enemy leader, the demonization of the enemy individuals and atrocity stories. So the media demands that we trust it, but all too often that trust has been betrayed. And you can just think how the same media who lied to us about the issues in Rhodesia, South Africa, Iran under the Shah of Iran, uh, betrayed how many countries around the world, and the same media which has been selling us with this scamdemic, plandemic, masquerade madness, lockdown lunacy, salvation by vaccination, COVID cult. We meant to trust them now as they promote a World Economic Forum young global leader, George Soros-sponsored, and we meant to assume that the angels are on this side of, and by the way, Zelensky's government in Ukraine, they've been locking up their journalists and their opposition leaders long before this war began. So it's, it's hardly a model democracy. And they've been targeting civilians in eastern Ukraine in the Donbass region, shelling and rocketing them, causing many thousand civilian casualties for the last eight years. So um, it's not exactly a, a clear-cut case of, uh, you know, everything is absolutely, uh, this side is completely right, this side's completely wrong. Uh, propaganda strategies, incompleteness, inaccuracy, driving the story, milking the story, exploiting what we want to believe, the best about ourselves, the worst about our opponents, perception management, and reinforcing existing attitudes and simple repetitions and emotional phrases. So in warfare, words are weapons, and propaganda involves word games, and name-calling of the target nation by labeling people and groups and institutions in the most uh, negative manner. But there's also glittering generalities, where with regard to your allies, you label our allies, the peoples, the groups, institutions, in the most positive manner. And then you attribute atrocities of your allies to your enemies, like the Katerian Forest Massacre. You know, attribute it to your enemy. Um, so much easier. You don't want to confuse your supporters with inconvenient facts. And then euphemisms are used to pacify the audience with bland meanings and connotations like pacification, technical incursion. Civilian casualties when caused by your side are collateral damage. Murder is replaced with liquidation. Terror bombing of cities called saturation bombing or strategic bombing campaign. Starvation of civilian populations called economic blockade or sanctions. Looting of farms, murder farmers called decolonization or land reform. Racial discrimination is black economic empowerment or affirmative action. Sexual perversion is called alternative lifestyles. And so continually what you see is thought control and the gullibility of the public. And this is serious because, you know, Perception management really changes everything. Uh, John Rendon, the founder of the Rendon Group, a PR agency, told cadets at the U.S. Air Force Academy, I'm a politician who uses communication to meet public policy objectives. In fact, I'm an information warrior. I'm a perception manager. Did you ever stop to wonder how the people of Kuwait City, after being held hostage for seven long, painful months, were able to get handheld American flags? Well, now you know the answer. That was one of my jobs. And so... Manipulating public opinion involves character assassination, smear tactics, discredit, destroy the reputation of someone perceived as an obstacle to policymakers. The calculated manipulation of public opinion to serve political ideological interests is achieved by appealing to emotions to create a reality which demands action desired by the policymakers. And I've seen the results in Rwanda. 800,000 people killed in about six weeks with machetes. Why? Propaganda. It was completely 
demonizing these people, whipping up hysteria until the average person thought that hacking to death their neighbors because they're the wrong tribe was justifiable. And mobilizing mass murder, and you dehumanize the enemy. That's how they've managed to murder so many people in South Africa. The brutal murder of 4,000 white farmers in the most torturous ways possible, and something in the region of like 80,000 other white South Africans since Mandela became president. It's done by the same methods that were used before the farm invasions of Zimbabwe, the Mau Mau murders in Kenya, the Simba massacres in the Congo, motivated and mobilized by propaganda, dehumanizing the targeted uh, victims, incessant propaganda. And this is the prob problem. Propaganda doesn't just change perceptions in people, propaganda kills. And that's why it's absolutely essential that we know the truth of history to recognize the lies of propaganda. And we need to study the Bible the truth in the Bible, so we can be freed from the deceptions of the world. That's why our Lord Jesus said, you will know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Back to you, Andrew. Fascinating study, Peter. Um, really, really interesting information, a lot of which I've not heard before. Um, I just want to draw the audience's attention to our show image today, which is obviously satirical. It uh, has BBC News in the corner. It's got a dummy lying on a hospital bed. And the caption is, Brave Ukrainian soldier lays in shock after contracting COVID-19 from Russian troops. And uh, I want to thank Giuseppe uh, for sending that in. He's on the Perfect Triangle of Operation Scorpio in the event on Revolution Radio and is a regular on ACH. Um, but it's a very important image because we see all these... The imagery that comes out, and there was an article on the BBC today where they're fact-checking uh, claims about the Ukrainian, the war in Ukraine, and, you know, people are saying this on the internet and people are saying that. Well, we know that they put footage up from some computer game and claim that that was from the uh, uh, conflict in the Ukraine, Peter. Are you familiar with that? I am. For example, the ghost of Kiev who owned the skies and shooting down myriads of Russian MiGs every day and so on and so forth. And it turns out that the pictures of some known actor in a plane that is from a computer game image. And people believe this. And then the other one was uh, these brave 13 Ukrainian soldiers in Snake Island who all died to a man uh, at the head of the Russians. And then they sort of inconveniently turned up on uh, Russia today uh, being interviewed, and they were obviously being treated well and being fed and given medical care and so on by uh, the Russians. Not only had not, the news report was that they'd all died. In fact, none of them had died, and uh, we're grateful for that, and they, they're being well treated from the reports of it and being treated as prisoners of war, which was quite decent. But there's so many different fake reports. In fact, there's a very brave French journalist out there, I've been going on a Facebook page and so on too, who's who, reporting that, in fact, where she is, the shelling of the uh, blocks of flats in the residential area is being done by the Ukrainian army. And uh, uh, she said, yes, definitely. The, she's documenting this and said it's not just happening now. It's been happening for the last eight years. The Ukrainians are targeting civilian areas and they're rocked in, not just in Donbass and uh, Lahash. Uh, but uh, uh, she says uh, with her documentation that they have been shelling uh, Russian-speaking Ukrainian areas in order to create images to then blame on the Russians that the Russians are shelling civilian areas. So um, you get a few things that just don't fit the narrative, and it makes you wonder, well, how much of what we're hearing is propaganda? There's so many of these feel-good stories. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when you've got a comedian actor as the president 
of Ukraine. He's obviously darn good at um, propaganda and he's excellent at acting and he's playing the role of a lifetime. And his inspiring video clips and sound bites uh, out there um, have gone virally around the world. But is what he's doing in the best interest of the people of Ukraine? And is a lot of what he says real? They've been showing pictures of him in camouflage in the front lines. And meanwhile, others said, but wait a minute, that footage was circulating a year ago. That wasn't visiting their troops. It was not in a time of war. Uh, so there's just so much that you've got in our question everything because so much of what we're getting is actually fake and fraudulent and giving the wrong impression. And sometimes they even have backdrops which are not real. It's not uh, the person isn't actually there, but they're giving the impression of the person being there. So I don't think we've ever been deluged with so much propaganda over the media and so much of what they claim you know, has been taken by somebody's cell phone. They had another one where a Russian tank um, crushed some poor civilian vehicle in Ukraine, except it came out later. It was actually a Ukrainian armored vehicle, not a tank. Most people think they're all tanks, but this was an armored car. It crushed um, a vehicle of a Ukrainian. Um, but um, this was sent around the world as uh, with screams of the people and all this alongside it, um, that this was a Russian tank even though it was a Ukrainian armored car that did it. Uh, but, you know, propagandists don't let facts get in the way of the narrative. Back to you, Andrew. No, they don't indeed. And it was interesting because something I noted down for our show post was when you said, essentially, uh, the, the tactic is uh, propaganda for the intellectuals and agitation for the masses. And that reminded me of the term agitprop. So I stuck that into a search engine and I've come up with uh, Cambridge uh, Dictionary Online. And it gives the definition as the spreading of strongly political ideas or arguments expressed through play especially sorry through plays art books etc well that's your whole mainstream media whether it's reporting news or whether it's hollywood movies or what have you that are designed to shape the masses into you know mm. what you want them to believe and you know the sexual perversions that they promote and all these different things and the it gives examples of agitprop below and this is from the cambridge english corpus it says agitprop art had been designed to catch the masses' attention to agitate and revolutionise workers by addressing them directly with the help of striking images and sounds. So this goes very deep, doesn't it, Peter? It does. And um, I don't know if you, the listeners are all aware that regularly the media uh, uh, outlets have been known to add sound effects to... They might get a film that's got absolutely no sound effects and then they add in the sound effects of people screaming or the sound of bombs or bullets or uh, engines and so on often are added because many times they've only got the images, they don't actually have the sound. And so the sound can make a huge difference. Just think also the movies that, you know, you have this ominous type of background music when the enemy's coming on and you have this very uplifting type of music when the good guys are on and so on. And so uh, in movies, you don't always notice how they're manipulating your emotions that way. But this is all part of propaganda. And then again, the images you choose, the picture you choose to put up of the person you don't like versus the type of picture you put up for the hero you're putting forward for everyone to support. Uh, you can choose between very flattering pictures and very unflattering pictures. So there's a lot of selection and and the amount of work and effort that goes into some of these programs. So you think of how many people are in the, in the um, office uh, <laughs> complex who are working on that 
one hour or 15 minutes of that TV program of BBC or CNN or whatever it is. And uh, uh, they, they work on every single aspect. It's not accidental and it's not just presenting the news the way it comes. They've got an agenda and you can't mistake it. I myself know this because from the youngest, I just remember when we were being demonized, everything about Rhodesia was put in the worst possible light uh, by the enemy. While we were fighting for our lives against communist terrorists, the Soviet Union, the hot part, the Cold War, we were in the very front line. Uh, the whole weight of the Soviet Empire and Red China were coming down upon us in Rhodesia. We were fighting for our lives and the West was depicting us as racist, Nazi, white supremacists. 85% of our army were black and we were protecting ourselves against the Reds, but they put it as a black-white conflict. And same with South Africa, when we were fighting against the communists in Angola and fighting to defend South West Africa at the last hot battles of the Cold War, battles of Lomba River and so on. And yet the, the, to come over uh, and then see in Britain what the BBC said about it, <laughs> can anyone believe this? This is ridiculous. This is the exact opposite of what's going on. But I see it again. I can't help but see it again. When I look at this, I'm not on the ground. I've got some friends on the ground in Ukraine and uh, missionaries in Ukraine and Russia who are giving me different perspectives. Uh, but, but the fact is I recognize propaganda when I see it. And what we're being subject to here is typical propaganda. And it's they are just giving you the one-sided and the fact that they de-platform the other sides. And even with, uh, was it um, in Australia that they ordered some poor Russian teenager out of the studio because he asked a question about the 13,000 Ukrainian civilians murdered by the uh, Eastern European Ukrainians who speak Russian being murdered by the Ukrainian forces. And uh, he was just told to leave. Now, he's asking a question and asking, why don't we have uh, outrage about those civilians too? And uh, they ordered him out and to applause. The fact that you're not even willing to listen to a question from a teenager on a program, it's very bad. Uh, what we're seeing is more intolerance. And I see a continuation of the COVID cult hysteria. You can't give any question about the vaccination or the value of masks or the lockdown or anything like this. You know, you're being shouted down and screamed down and shut down and deplatformed and disappearing down a memory hole and becoming an unperson to use George Orwell's terms. And it's it's like we've moved into another phase of it where now if you dare to ask questions, well, well why did we want to? force Ukraine to be a member of NATO. Why did America work on a coup to oust the previous government uh, there in 2014? And uh, what about the Ukrainians in the east uh, of Ukraine who are getting shelled and rocketed? Or, uh, well, why don't we just guarantee that there won't be missiles put in Ukraine? Uh, we could stop the conflict, but you're not allowed to ask those questions because it disturbs the narrative. Back to you, Andrew. Peter, I remember something David Irving said that you'll be familiar with when he was talking about the Hitler diaries and he said you know the thing about being involved in research and what have you is you tend to miss the obvious things he mm -hmm. said and it never crossed my mind that uh, someone would um, the fact that all the volumes of Hitler's diary were the same design you know, as if he went into yes. a shop one day and said, um, I want to buy 70 of those because I'm about to write a diary. You know, because, of course, as we know, even with my little pocket diary <laughs> I have here, um, every year, and I get it from the same place, and they always change it somehow. You know, they do something with it. It's the same. Yes. And there's always something different. And I think, why can't they just leave it the same and just put the different year on the front? Um, and the reason I say that is you touched upon how they will photograph people it, you know, not looking their best if they're their enemies. 
And this is something that I see all the time, but I've never actually raised it on any show, I don't believe. And there's even a term uh, that I don't know if it's um, known uh, outside of Britain because it says this is a British term. And it's called gurning, which is spelt G-U-R-N-I-N-G, gurning. And it's the art of pulling a grotesque face. Okay, and when you see how they capture a lot of these people they don't like, they always try and get them in, you know, situations where they look a bit odd or what have you, in order again to use that to kind of demonise them, make make people less, you know, go along. Well, these are these look a bit. This person looks a bit strange to me, so he's obviously a bad person. And uh, on the subject of side issue, uh, with regard to gurning, there is even a World Gurning Championships that's held every year at the Egremont Crab Fair in the Lake District in England. But yeah, have a look at that, folks. And funnily enough, on that, it actually shows examples of people pulling these faces. But obviously, I'm taking it to the nth degree here but whenever you look at mainstream media articles and they're referring you know trying to demonize someone in an article for whatever reason you look at how they photograph them and how they try and make them look as as, as um you know if if the, the person being photographed would uh, would never have chosen the photographs they use they always try to get them looking their worst that's what i'm trying to say so peter any mm. comments on that and then please let the audience know how they can contact you and where they can find your work yes we all need to ask ourselves continually do you like being lied to because let's face it they've lied to us about everything they've lied to us about the second world war they've lied to us about Rhodesia and south africa they lied to us about iran under the shah uh, they lied to us about covid masks wuhan everything like this and now i'm meant to trust them on this so yes i think let's continually be very very cautious beware of deception there's a lot of warnings in the bible do not be deceived and so um let's be sure to support faithful reliable track record groups with with trustworthy uh, background, you know, support the alternative media and don't put your time and effort into supporting the lamestream mainstream propaganda networks. If you want to get hold of me, my personal email is peter at frontline.org.za, peter at frontline.org.za. And our mission website is www.frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa.org. We tackling uh, quite a few of these things uh, from perspective of Christians from military background who work in war zones. And uh, I'm trying to put out now more things on uh, how to understand wars and how we meant to respond and how to redeem the situation. So thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you for continually being brave enough to report what others are not willing to do and to make a stand. Back to you, Andrew. Well, thank you so much, Peter, for your support of this show. Um, it would never have been what it was without you. Um, and I know I'm speaking for many people listening. This is one of their favourites that they look out for each week. And so we thank you for your efforts. And folks, uh, that is it for today. So again, I want to thank Peter for joining us on today's show, entitled The Real Story of Propaganda in the Media. Peter and I will be back with you at the same time next week. I'll, of course, be back with you all tomorrow. And until then, folks, have a wonderful day and bye for now.